The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guy, publisher of the Lead Lag Report, and our special guest for the hour is Patrick Bed David. So, Patrick, it's funny. I, I, you know, when I usually when I reach out to different people to do these conversations, I'm looking at other uh, well-known people in the finance industry and who they follow, and a number of people followed you. And you know, you always look familiar to me, like I've seen you before. And I, it dawned on me that you know you've got this phenomenal podcast. I've seen you do a lot of these interviews on YouTube. I don't know how many people here in this space are familiar with your background. Set the stage as far as uh, who you are and, and kind of your life story. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on and uh, reaching out. Background, born and raised in Iran, lived there 10 years, escaped six weeks after Khomeini died in 89 to Germany, lived at a refugee camp there for a year and a half. Finally, we got our visa to a green card to come to the States, came out here to Glendale, California, joined the Army, was in the Army for a few years, 101st Airborne. I got out. My plan was to be the next Middle Eastern Arnold, win a Mr. Olympia, you know, marry a Kennedy, be an actor, one day run for governor. But I met a girl named Jean Beer who worked at Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter, and she persuaded me to get a job there, even though I didn't have a four-year or a two-year degree. And I applied. I uh, sent out uh, my cover letter, had the I had a joke on a cover letter, which is what got these guys to actually, you know, open up and say, I like this guy's personality. Maybe they found it funny. I uh, got 15 interviews out of the 100 faxes I sent out. I got three job offers day before 9-11. Started off with Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter. I'm serious. 7, 66, 31, 26, life and hell till today. Left Morgan, went to Transamerica, was on the insurance side with uh, VUL business for about seven and a half years. October of 09, started my own insurance company, grew it from 66 agents to 20,000 plus agents nationwide. We do around, you know, anywhere between eight to 12,000 insurance policies per month, specifically life and annuities. And around 2013, I uh, started creating content on YouTube and that grew to Valuetainment. And I've done some random interviews, whether it's mobsters, uh, the late Kobe Bryant, George Bush, you know, politicians, uh, you know, crypto community. And, and that led to another podcast. And now we got a few billion online views and uh, Valuetainment's turned into a podcast in itself. So that, that's that's briefly my story. I'm curious, how did you manage that that growth, right? Because we know being an entrepreneur is hard, but the transition from entrepreneur to sort of more corporate can be quite challenging because entrepreneurs by nature tend to want to, I think, control everything. All right. So I'm curious in terms of that journey on the insurance side, how did you manage that growth? 
It, it's interesting you say that. I just had Cenk on, Cenk Yuger uh, from uh, the Young Turks, who politically, him and I are on complete opposite sides, but we were talking, and he was just on a podcast. I left the like, 20 minutes ago to come join you here. And that was part of the conversation because, you know, the challenge when you are both a talent and you're hiring and you're firing and you have opinions and you're offending and you take, it's a very challenging position to be. I'm not going to lie to you because sometimes I would do certain interviews or certain opinions I would give about capitalism and my opinions on minimum wage or my opinions on many different topics that was taking place. I would experience my employees saying, well, Pat, I disagree with you. I agree with you. And then I had to realize you have to kind of open it up and have a open dialogue, almost like a discourse debate where your own employees can disagree with you in an exchange of conversations to make them feel safe that they can be there. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not easy to do that, but you don't have a choice. If you want to be the CEO, if you want to be the talent, if you want to be the operator, if you want to be married with four kids, I got a 10, an eight, a five-year-old and an eight-month-old, nine-month-old. It's not easy to balance all of that. But the, the bigger you get, Michael, somebody like you who is a, a person that's in business and you've done very well for yourself, everything is about hiring the right people that give you back hours for that week. The way I look at hiring uh, a talent and teammates is, one, they're bringing skill sets that I don't have, but they're also giving me time back. For instance, if at the beginning, two, three, four, five years of running the company, I'm doing 80 hours a week and I'm wearing 50 different hats, one by one by one, I want to give up hats to other individuals every time I can afford to hire somebody at 200, somebody at 100, somebody at 150, uh, you know, 50 at 50. And slowly but surely, like, OK, I was working 80 a week, seven days a week driving the company during the startup phase. But now I feel I have more time to make the bigger decisions, which is the thinking, the strategic, the vision. What do we need to do next? Who do we need to team up with next? What partner do we need to bring? What investments do we need to make? So obviously having the right people around you gives you back time to actually be able to think, strategize and drive the company to the next level. You know, when you're doing a startup gig, you are the culture, right? You're the the corporate yep. culture. And that kind of goes back to the managing of the growth because part of growth is also making sure that not only you have the right people, but you have the right culture as an entity is going through hyper growth. But you want to make sure that also that culture then goes beyond just you. So talk through the audience how you think entrepreneurs should uh, address the aspect of creating the proper corporate uh, culture, right? When there's more sort of people in the seats. Yeah, that, that's a, it's almost like a pendulum, right? If you think about a pendulum where, you know, when the business gets started, you got two, you know, if I had a, something to show you visually right now, you'd see it, but think about an X, just think about what an X looks like. The top left is you, you are the brand, the bottom left line that's going up, is the company's name. Nobody knows the company. But eventually, it has to go to the point where you no longer matter and you are no longer the brand. The more you matter to the brand, the less the company is worth without you. For example, let's just say today, Elon Musk makes an announcement on Twitter saying, I resign from my CEO responsibilities at Tesla and I'm stepping away because I'm going to go do X, Y, Z and I'm no longer the chairman. I'm going to do something else. Okay, great. If the stock doesn't move at all, well, guess what? He's already replaced himself and the world no longer looks at Tesla as Elon Musk. But I think for the most part, it's going to move at first. And then the market's going to sit there and say, is this real? Is it not? What's going to happen? Just like when Steve Jobs died at 56 years old, a lot of people were concerned because everybody had bought into his vision. 
And then he decides to give the job to somebody that's been with them for 28 years, I believe, Tim Cook. And when he died, the company was worth $100 billion. Now it's worth $3 trillion, give or take. Credit to Tim Cook and credit to Steve Jobs for identifying who the right person is to replace you. So, Michael, I guess my answer to your question would be we get judged based on the friends we choose. We get judged based on the books and content we read. We get judged based on women or husband or spouse we marry. But we also get judged based on who we give our duties to to replace us. And the better of a job we do as founders and entrepreneurs, the better the company does. And sometimes that, that judgment to, to, to judge your decision making, whether you replace yourself with the right person or not, sometimes that may take three, four, five, ten years. We won't know for a while. But, but that's what I would say to the founder that's trying to juggle being the face as well as building the brand. I would say it depends on the vision. For example, okay. When you think about Joe Rogan, would you and I watch Joe Rogan if Joe Rogan wasn't part of JRE experience? We're not going to, right? Right. Okay. If you look at Daily Wire, a Ben Shapiro, he's the brand initially. Now he's recruiting other people and he's grown his media company, right? But he's trying to get the company to be more valuable without him. He brought the right CEO co-CEO, he's brought other talent, agree or disagree with his vision and his philosophies. It doesn't matter. He was a social media influencer who turned it into a company who is now recruiting other people, who's now producing movies, who's now got an app called Daily Wire that's got a few hundred thousand subscribers. Now they're doing 60 something million per year. Now it's a legitimate business. You got to give him credit that he's brought other people on board. But if your vision is just to be an influencer and that is all the vision on social media, yeah, that's that's one way of doing it. But if your vision is to build equity in a company, the way I look at a value of a company is what it's worth without the founder. Because even as an investor myself, when I'm investing into a company, the first thing as an investor I look at is, okay, who's the entrepreneur? Is this guy crazy enough and driven enough? And does he have a chip on his shoulder to go make this work? Because we all know how hard that is. The second thing you're going to ask is, okay, does he have a differentiator? You know, this is not the first time you guys are hearing this. You've heard this before. You probably said this before. And then the third thing you look at, which many investors look at, is who's your management team? Who's your executive team? Who's your COO? Who's your CTO? Who's your CMO? Who's your CFO? And maybe you're missing a CFO. Well, I can bring in a CFO. I'm not really that worried about it. But if you're a technology company, you need a good CTO. Who is the CTO? Are you the CTO? And again, it, it depends on... The individual, if it's more a brand individual, it matters less. But if it's to turn it into a real company with hundreds of employees that has a value to it, that someone's willing to cut a check eventually one day without you being a part of it, the strategy changes based on what the vision is. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. I'm going to go, Patrick, to some of your 
experience and background in sales. Because I saw on your site that Brian Tracy was mentioned, and I used to follow Brian Tracy when I was a kid. I mean, literally, I had audio mm-hmm. cassette, cassettes where you know, he's talking about seminars. And one thing that Brian Tracy said, which stuck with me even at my much later age now, is that you need to have what he called the winner's edge. And he had this this fantastic analogy. He said, "Imagine you're you're at a horse race and." you're betting for who's going to be the, the the winning horse and the winning horse wins by nose. Your payout is like 10 times more than, you know, if you bet on the second place horse, even though the first place horse won by nose. And his argument basically was that a little bit of extra effort yeah, it has an ex- exponential impact mm-hmm. on the end result. Talk about in your career, in your life, how have you, how you've thought about sales and what was your winner's edge? How did you, keep pushing to keep selling, to keep growing and, and, and kind of get your success. Yeah, that, that's a great, by the way, I'm glad you brought up Brian Tracy for people who know sales. He's, he's, he's a legend. I mean, if you just study his books on sales, you're going to do fine. And he's got great goal setting content. I've had him on, we had him on, I think 10 years ago when we did an event, but here's, here's what's worked for me when it comes down to sales. Okay. So, so let's go through the process of sales that we all go through. Step number one is prospecting. Number two is the actual, you know, contact we make to the prospect. So an email, a text, a DM, a call, whatever package you send to them, then it's the presentation you give to them, whatever uh, presentation you're going to give them. It's a deck, it's a brochure, it's a slide, it's a five page zoom you know, five slides Zoom that you're going to go do with them. Then for us, follow up. And then that leads to, you know, taking a client to a deeper level, whether you're somebody that can get referrals out of that client. Some people are great closers, but they suck in referrals. Some people are great referrals, but they suck in closing and they're nervous to close. So there's different facets to it. This is what this is what my opinion is in, in the sales side. One, you give me a, a, a guy that's creative and a worker He's going to make sales. And here's what I mean by, you know, back in the days, they used to say, you know, you want to get a hold of somebody. You got to figure out seven different ways to get a hold of that person. Okay, whatever those seven ways could be. Nowadays, you can have 50 different ways to get a hold of somebody. It's not hard to get a hold of them. But a creative person is going to get in touch with them. Years ago, I was trying to get in touch with this one client that was a money guy and I couldn't get a hold of him. So eventually what I did is I went and. I went to a not Payless, but DSW, it's a shoe store, and I bought 40 pairs of shoes, around 20 bucks each, 20 to 30 bucks each. So it cost me $1,000. I made a list of these 40 clients I wanted. It was specific to one, but I made 40 clients I wanted to get to. I sent the box with a note in it, and I only put one shoe in it, not the other one, only one with a note. Brand spanking new shoe, receipts in there, and I send it to him, to the CEO, to the founder to the dry cleaners owner, to whoever the guy was I was trying to get a hold of. And in the note, I said, hey, John, I respect the business you built. I'd love to take you out to lunch. This shoe in the box represents that I got one foot in the door. I have the other shoe with me. Allow me to get the second foot in the door once we meet face to face. LOL, here's the best way to get a hold of me. I hope you appreciate the sense of humor. You would be amazed, Michael, how many people called me back and I'm a regular guy that's making 40 grand a year at that time. I'm a nobody. I'm a 22-year-old advisor. And, and who is this guy from Morgan Stanley? You don't even have a million dollars under management. Your dad works at a 99-cent store in Inglewood. You don't have a four-year degree. You don't have a two-year degree. Nobody's ever heard of a last name called Bet David. But you know what? You're creative. You're funny. I like your approach. Come on in, young stud. Let's see what we can do together. So I, I, the guys that are creative in sales, you're going to make it. 
The other part about that works with the sales side for me is some some form of levity and humor. Some form of levity and humor uh, has has always worked. It doesn't matter whether I'm trying to sit down and, and I got a couple guys that are coming in here to meet with me from you know Silver Lake, or if I'm meeting with a small private equity company in Greenwich and I'm having six meetings with them, or if I'm sitting with a client that I'm trying to sell a million dollar insurance policy to, or if I'm trying to get Mark Cuban to do an interview on the podcast when I only have a thousand subscribers eight years ago. And he's sitting there saying, who the hell is this guy that wants to have interview me? And then eventually, three months later, I'm in, you know, Mark Cuban's uh, American Airlines Center at the Dallas Mavericks Arena in his office, man cave that he built. And we do an hour plus interview and I only have 1500 subs. And people are like, oh, you will never get this guy. Oh, you'll never get this guy. Look, creativity, humor, effort, patience, follow up, discipline, you know, long term thinking, all of those matter. So. I can talk about sales for hours, but I would just leave it at that. Okay, so but but here's the challenge, right? So, and I agree 100 on that. I think a lot of my creativity has gotten me to where I am too. But creativity is hard to teach, right? So, if creativity is key to sales, and yes, you can learn sales, creativity is that winner's edge. But how do you how do you actually get somebody to understand how to be creative? Well, it, unfortunately, most creative people are not necessarily the hardest working people because they get distracted easily, right? So it almost benefits you to, to be a little bit more boring because you're more willing to do the day-to-day routine consistently than the other guy is. The other guy is going to get distracted and he's going to go from selling one product to another product to another product because to another product because he can't stay too still. It's almost like the left brain, right brain argument that you're making and some people think, the left brain is a way to win. Some people think the right brain is a way to win. But in, in this context, I think if you're a four in creativity, you may never be a 10, but we can make you a six. You know, you may be a five in creativity. You may never be a 10, but we can get you to a seven, to a six. That additional ability to be creative and push the envelope will help you right now. If you're talking to me from the professional standpoint, it's a different conversation you're having. I was a guy till today. I work six days a week. I don't do seven. I take Sundays off, but I'm a six day guy. I'm not a five day. I'm not a four day. On the sixth day, which is Saturday, I work till two o'clock. Then I come home and I'm with my family for the weekend and I'm back at it again on Mondays. When I was competing in the insurance or the, the investment banking industry, the business with other guys, I noticed, you know, the, the basic things, one, long term, you know, nothing I'm telling you is going to be anything new. The discipline of working, the day to day of working, the no matter what, for me, if you and I went at it and we're competing and let's just say one week you made 300 calls and I only made 200 calls that week and the next week. You made 300 calls and I only made 200 calls. So you're kicking my ass in two weeks. But the following week, you make 50 calls and I'm making 200 calls. And the following week, you take a week off and you make zero calls and I make 200 calls. And the following week, you're back and you go to 200 calls and I'm still doing 200 calls. I'm going to kick your ass because I'm making steady no matter what calls on a weekly basis. And this other individual's up down. You kill it for two weeks. You go on blitzes, then you slow down. So. There, there, the, the guys that in sales that I watched do very, very well were rarely the extremely talented, flamboyant, loud, big personality. Believe it or not, those guys gassed, those guys got gassed too early. They got burned out too early. They got tired too early and they leaned too much on their talents and personality, not enough in a 
skill set that's transferable to somebody else with strong habits. And then eventually you're like, well, I used to be very impressed with that guy, but that guy's not that disciplined. But I used to not be that impressed with that guy. Man, I got so much respect for him because this dude shows up every flipping day, no matter what happens. I salute this guy. I'd like to take his disciplines more than the other one. So again, it's it's a multidimensional question you're asking, but I would agree with you on the creativity side. However, I do think we can still make people a little bit more creative than they are today. Yeah, no, fair point. Okay, so so let's let's pivot a little bit to the creativity in finding guests, <laughs> right? For your podcast, I saw you had Danielle DiMartino Booth a couple of times. We've had her on. How do you go about finding different guests with such varied backgrounds? You mentioned the mob, mobster side, but you know, or one of the guests was a mobster. But but I'm curious, just what's your process there, and and what subjects uh, have been most interesting in your career in terms of who you're interviewing? Well, why don't we go through some of them? I mean, I just shared with you Mark Cuban's right. I, mean, I wanted to interview George Bush, president, and to have him at our event, but he was not comfortable for many years. And so I eventually did an event at President Bush Library and spent time with his family and got closer to the people he knew. So the more people I won around him that they said, this guy's a stand up guy, then he eventually said, look, he was on vacation when he came and spoke at our event because it was August. So he left vacation, came, spoke at the event. We had 100 Secret Service agent and security there, flew back to uh, Maine, but he gave us that time, even though he didn't need to do it. But it was winning people over around them. I'll, I'll give you the, the most basic way on how this thing works for me. So let's go back to high school and say we're 17 years old, 16 years old. And there is this girl I like or you like. Her name is Mary. And when you try to approach her directly like everybody else, it just doesn't work. But a different strategy would be to go and have the five biggest influencers around Mary. And you write it on a piece of paper and you say, OK, biggest influencers, mom. Older sister, softball coach, you know, favorite teacher, and her best friend, hypothetically. Okay, my strategy would be slightly different. I'm going to go win over the teacher, okay? I'm going to go win over the mom. I'm going to go win over the best friend. I'm going to go win over their sister. I'm going to go win over the favorite, you know, uh, softball coach in a way that I win them over. And then when my name comes up, they're going to say, oh, Patrick, oh, I love Pat. Really? Oh, I love, why? You know, he was just, I think he's interested. Oh my God, you should. I love the guy. He's amazing. Okay. Then by the time I've won those five over, I say, hey, Marie, how you doing? Good. Oh my, oh my, Patrick, I was just talking about my mom with you. Oh, really? Yeah. Look, I'd love to take you out. What do you, you know? and then it's so easy, right? Because you won the people over. That same concept applies to sales. So if I'm trying to win over a person that I want on my event, say we want Kobe Bryant, I got to win over his agent. I got to win over his manager. I got to win over his peers. I got to win over his Vanessa. I got to win over. So I got to win over people like Kevin Hart and I have a very, very good relationship together. But that took years of winning over a lot of people around because I'm I'm not a celebrity. I was not somebody that people knew. I didn't have any eyeballs on social, but it's a lot of legwork behind closed doors. Now, here's the other part, Michael. Here's the other part. In relationship, there are guys that know how to land them, but there are guys that don't know how to keep them. Just like in relationship, there are those women who know how to land a guy, but they don't know how to keep a guy. This goes both ways. I've lost many that I got, but I couldn't keep because I wasn't good myself when I was coming up in the relationship game. The same as business. So, But once you're able to get an influencer in that you build a great relationship with, now the game becomes 
how deep can you take that relationship? One layer, two layers, three layers, four layers. Are you written handwritten notes? Are you sending cards to them? Are you doing certain things that people will forget and not do? Are you adding to a birthday list? From 2003, Michael, till today, I've sent uh, birthday cards of anybody that bought a policy from me or anybody that worked from with me that I ended up having a relationship with. Around 30,000 cards get sent out every year. Now, out of the 30,000 that get sent out every year, I would say 80% of them are a service that I just signed. The 20%, the closer I am, is handwritten notes, right? When you think about Bill Clinton, when they ask him a question, how'd you become a president? He says, it's called, you know, 20,000 people I collected on a Rolodex that I wrote cards to. That was how I got my campaign started. I think some of us can improve. Now, I, I had to improve in this area early on in my career. We may be good salespeople and we may be able to land a guest to come onto the podcast, but we need to be better builders of that relationship. And with Danielle, I built that relationship and asked what Danielle wanted, and we provided that for her. If it was a, I'll give you one that's going to be very strange, but an entertaining story. I don't know if anybody here knows Sammy the Bull Gravano. You know, Sammy the Bull, part of the Gambino family. He was the underboss to John Gotti. So Sammy the Bull, I interview Michael Francis, and our interview on YouTube ends up getting 13, 14 million views. And it's all of a world star. It's on TMZ. It's on this. It's on that. And I'm getting all these messages. Well, Sammy leaves jail, comes out of jail. And I end up getting his phone number from a, a close contact of his because I wanted to do an interview because the last person that interviewed her was Diane Sawyer. He doesn't do interviews. He doesn't trust anybody. Well, the first call I had with uh, Sammy, it was a two hour call of furious with me for having sat down with Michael and telling me the real history of the mob. And it ends an hour and a half later. I got one word in and he dropped F-bombs. You could just imagine what you would think the conversation would sound like. It was that times 10. By the time it was done, I said, Sammy, why don't you and I sit down and do an interview? And why don't you share this? I would never fucking do an interview. Well, okay, no problem. So I call him back, doesn't pick up. Follow up, follow up, follow up. Eventually, I said, look, I'm in Arizona next week. Do you want to have a meeting? Yeah, call me when you're in town. I get in town. He tells me, come and visit me here. Anyways, I go in and I end up visiting him in this building. That's the office all the way in the back. I went with one of my associates, Mario. Mario's like, should I call my mom and tell her I love her? Because this may be the last time I may talk to my mom. I said, Mario, hang in there. Everything's going to work out. So we go and we sit in the back and he talk and talk and talk. And two and a half hours later, he says, you know what? I like your style. Why don't we talk about a possible interview? Six months later, I interview Sammy, ends up getting 15 million views just on one short clip, and then eventually ends up being a total of 100 million views with the media pickup and all, everybody else picking up that interview. And then we just did a documentary, a 10-series docu-series called The Mafia States of America with himself, with Michael Francis, first time in the history of TV that two mobsters who are capos or higher were willing to do a live interview it was a 24-hour recording over a three-day span with Rudy Giuliani and uh, Chas Palminteri from Bronx Tale narrated the whole thing. Very, very unique concept of what we did. And that took off. But that took years of relationship building for us to get into the real nitty-gritty side of what happened with the mob. And my interest is because I watched Godfather so many times with my dad that I'm like, let me see if this movie is real, if it's really happening or not. I mean, I, I can go on and on with different guests that I've had on. But hopefully that gives you a little bit of insight. We'll be back after a quick break. 
Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, no, no, definitely really interesting. Okay, so now you, you interview guests for their views on things. Yeah, I want to interview you, you for your view on things. I saw the the tweet about Elon Musk and Warren, and I've often raged against this idea that even, even if you were to take old billionaire wealth, it would cover like 10 months worth of government spending. So you've got these narratives out there on the political sphere. You've got social media, which loves to retweet the clickbait of you know, tax the rich. I'm curious your thoughts on the state of uh, politics, taxes, and sort of this wealth gap, this, this narrative that's out there. Uh, do you think there's validity to it? Do you think it's all just a distraction? You know, kind of riff on that for a bit. Yeah. So, you know, we have uh, what, what's changed is uh, English may not be my first language. It's my fifth. But I think what's changed is a lot of uh, meanings of words have changed. For example, we, we you know, people used to be uncomfortable using the F word. Oh, my God. I'm mean, never used the F word. The F word today is earn. E-A-R-N. We are so uncomfortable to talk about earning, earning the right, giving back to earn the right to contribute like Look, I, I came here when I was 12. I, I came to America. America didn't have to accept me, but they did. For the rest of my life, I owe this country more than the country owes me. The country doesn't owe me nothing. They didn't try to recruit me. I chose to come here. I'm indebted to America. But some people are confused with that. It's like, no, America's indebted to me. America owes me nothing. The only thing America owes me is to allow me to have the freedom to give my thoughts, give my opinions, you know, allow me to compete in a marketplace. If I'm not good, don't pay me. Let me get fired and I'll go get a job selling gym memberships again. But if I can't compete in a marketplace, I have earned the right to get paid as much as I want. So the tax system is set up as an incentive. I don't think people explain the tax structure the right way. I look at the tax structure just like a sales company has a commission structure. A great commission structure produces the right results and helps grow the company. A bad commission structure loses salespeople. A great commission structure attracts workers, attracts people that are willing to come in and say, look, I don't care if you pay me a salary. I don't want salary. I don't want benefits. I just want to own my clients. I want to get the pay the biggest possible I can in this. And maybe don't start me off big, but let me earn my right to get up. But if I do... Don't get upset if I'm making five million a year. Don't all of a sudden sit there and say, oh, shit, we're paying this guy too much money. No, no, no. I busted my ass to get to five million dollar year income. So now what Elon Musk did is he took the compensation plan that America offers, which is incentives for creators who create jobs. So this whole thing with Elizabeth Warren about the whole four hundred sixty five million dollars that he got. OK, great. Yes, he did. In 2010. It was a 10-year loan when she's calling him a freeloader, but the 10-year loan he paid off in three years. And at the time when he paid it off, he had 6,000 employees. And today, Tesla's got 100,000 jobs. That's 94,000 jobs that he created himself. He created those 94,000 jobs. And those 94,000 jobs, the way to look at it is he decreased taxes to me because it's 94,000 more people, a total of 100,000, 
that don't rely on the government for a handout, which not relying on the government means taxes don't need to be increased for you and I. So we need to recognize and celebrate this man's accomplishment on what he's done. It doesn't mean he's God. It doesn't mean he's this and that. It just means he made our lives easier because fewer people are now relying on us. My, my uh, sister married my uh, brother-in-law, Siamak, and uh, everybody asked me, how do you view Siamak? I said, he's a saint. Why is that? Let me explain to you why. The last time I worried about my sister was the day before she started dating Siamak. Siamak and her have been married now for 20 years, give or take. I think it's 20 years, one of the best weddings I went to. But they've been married for about 20 years, okay? I don't go to sleep worrying about my older sister. I don't go to sleep about taking care of her health, taking care of her kids, taking care of anything. To most people who are men who have a sister, who have nephews and nieces, a brother goes to sleep worrying about his sister. He wants to make sure somebody takes care of his sister. To me, Elon Musk is taking care of 100,000 people that work for him that you and I don't have to worry about bailing out or helping out. That's a hero. And if they don't like that structure, well, we can always go to a different structure. But what happens if you change the tax incentive structure, you'll see people moving from states to other places and you'll see people moving from countries to other places. Things change. But, you know, that's the main thing when I think about our hero making machine needs a little bit of help. We need to kind of recalibrate who are the heroes of America, who are the heroes of the world, and then not confuse kids to think heroes today are complainers rather than heroes being, you know, doers and creators. And I know that's a, a tough topic for some people because like, oh, that's not fair. That's not fair to do this. That's not fair to do that. Look, I admire people wake up in the morning and figure out a way, a way to win. Even though it's tough, I salute you. So the biggest challenge I have with that story with Elizabeth Warren and Elon Musk is our hero making machine needs a little bit of help. Do you find the uh, wealth gap to be problematic at some point? And, and I say that because I know you interviewed Jordan Peterson uh, before. And one of the things that Jordan Peterson said, which I agree with, is that you have to be careful that the wealth gap doesn't get too wide because that's what creates uprisings. Right. So and, and, you know, given that you were born in, in Iran and, you know, there are wealth gaps in every society, no matter what. But I'm curious your thoughts on if you think the wealth gap is getting to be too wide now where it really could conceivably be a, a societal problem for America. So, so Michael, you're, you're in. Uh, what are you? Are you? Let me see specifically. What would you say your background is? I am a portfolio manager. And by the way, I will say background ethnicity wise, I'm Egyptian. So you and I share the Middle Eastern uh, side <laughs> of things. But yeah. So, so you said portfolio manager, right? Yes, yes. I run running so, funds, correct. So let me ask you this: Do you recommend I put all my money in cash today for the next ten years? Of course not. Uh, would you recommend I be a little bit more in equities or crypto or? you know, some kind of ETF, whether it's one or the other, but have my money that's working for me rather than just putting it in cash? Yes, because the argument, which I think you'd agree with, is that you know, the difference between wealthy and not wealthy is people have to work for their money when they're uh, not wealthy. When they're wealthy, the money works for them, right? Perfect. So then, then, then here's what my challenge is and what my concern is, okay? My challenge and my concern is, and, and this may be way too left field for some of your audience, but I'm going to share it anyways. My concern is, you know, the, do we have certain people that actually want to keep the poor poor? I don't know. I'm purely speculating. Do we have a, a target or maybe a, a, a community that wants to keep middle class middle class? Do, do we have certain people that don't want to help create wealth for those individuals because it's easier to control? 
Maybe, you know, maybe we do. We all know what happens with the father and the son or the mother and the daughter relationship where, you know, that tipping point that we all went through with our parents where eventually our parents try to talk to us like we're still 14 years old and they're like, oh shit, you're 22. Yep, you can no longer, you know, use certain fear tactics anymore. Like I can use certain fear tactics. My, my nanny is Mexican, so she would always tell our kids, hey, coyotes are outside if you don't eat your food. I'm like, no, but stop saying coyotes. There is no coyotes outside. But baby, if I don't tell them they're not going to eat the food, I'm like, just just take something away from them. But don't tell them there's coyotes outside. But we use certain fear tactics, right? Just like the media does, just like the government does, just like everybody does. Here's the reality of it. The same way you told me to not put my money in cash the next 10 years because I'm going to get screwed every single year. Who's out there telling low and middle income families to read finance books? Who's out there telling low and middle income families to increase their skill sets? Who's out there going above and beyond helping low and middle income families instead of watching TV or Netflix or entertain or be distracted by all these sports and all these, you know, hundreds of different shows that we have on to watch? Hey, why don't you take a three year break and read a little bit more? Learn a new skill set. There's plenty of courses on Udemy, Pluralsight, coding. There's so many universities today. One of the best universities is this thing called YouTube. Why are we not talking about that? Why are we not wanting to help make the gap tighter? Because if if I put if you put your money in an investment, your investment's making 12% a year, and I stay in cash, let's just say I have $10,000 today and you have $10,000 today, we're even. But if I stay in cash for 30 years, 30 years later, my $10,000 is Z is still $10,000. It's even less because of purchasing power. But let's just say it's still $10,000. Now your $10,000 30 years later at 12% is what, $1.2 million or some number like that? The wealth gap is a byproduct of the same example I just gave you. Low income and middle income is not being taught to recreate themselves some learned skill sets. And the wealthy keep making the better investment and the gap's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And if they think this is a big deal today, wait till in the next two, three years we have trillionaires. Then what are they going to say? Wait till we have trillionaires. So I think uh, the, I'm in the state of Florida. The governor in the state just announced the fact that financial literacy is now mandatory to teach in public schools. Well, freaking about time. It's 2022 and now we're doing this? Now we're doing this. We're waiting till now to do it. How about all the other states? I, I didn't grow up out of, I didn't graduate from high school knowing shit about money. Excuse my French. So I think it's more reinvesting into people like me. My dad was a cashier at a 99 cent store in Inglewood, California. My parents got a divorce. My mom ran out of money, went back to Iran. I joined the army because I had no choice. I didn't join the army because my dad was a general or a colonel. Nobody taught me about money. Nobody taught me about the tax system. Nobody taught me in high school, here's how this works, here's how, uh, how that works. So I think as much as we can point fingers at everybody, I think everybody needs to take a little bit of responsibility for this. But more than anything else, we need to also put the onus a little bit back to, hey, less time watching entertainment, less time debating over who's the best basketball player in the world, and put a little bit more time learning about how money works and learning about how side hustle works. Again, I may be wrong. A lot of people may disagree with me on this, but that's my position on that. Yeah, no, I agree. I, and it's it, I, one of my more viral tweets was about, uh, you know, how many people remember the period, but we, we don't teach anything about finance as, as kids uh, to kids. So, OK, so so 
there's a lot of interesting directions we can go from that. How do you get people to not, to not be distracted? You mentioned that distractions are, are part of the reason or probably a large part of the reason why people may not be advancing. But it's so easy to get distracted, especially when algorithms are constantly pushing things that we agree with and that are entertaining in our face. I mean, I, I know the simple answer is just that we need to be aware of it and consciously try to seek out education. But how do you think through that dynamic? Because that's a very hard trend to counter. Yeah, no, you're right. And listen, so so there's there's a couple couple things in life we can't fight, meaning you and I cannot find, fight gravity. I mean, I know some people are working on certain things. Yeah, we can if we do this. Look, I'm not going to spend my life savings trying to fix gravity. I'm just not going to do it. Just like I'm not going to spend my life trying to fix people on how to avoid distractions. Instead, I encourage positive distractions. I love distractions, but I like positive distractions. Well, what do you mean, Pat? I got four kids, okay? If, if for the people that are listening, that they're, they're with us right now, we all know when you and I did drugs or alcohol or something stupid is because we had a little bit too much time on our hands, right? And what do parents always say? Well, the biggest distraction, you know, you can give to your kids, you know, best thing is to prevent your kids from getting in trouble is what? Sports. We've heard that a million times. If I play sports, if you play sports, well, my son, you know, has got to sport. And by the time you come home, you're so tired. You have to do your homework. You don't have the chance to do something dumb. Right. And we, we some of us are thankful that our parents put us in sports. But shit, if you're part of my community, I wasn't I'm six, five, two fifty four. And I work out and I never played organized sports in high school because I had a job at Hagen dazs at 14, 15 years old. And my distractions was bodybuilding. It was playing you know, street ball, and it was working, trying to find a way to make money. It was a positive distraction. So how do we fight distractions today? Except now we're 42 years old, we're 44 years old, we're 58 years old, we're 32 years old. If you're going to have distractions, instead of looking at Facebook feed of what people are doing that day, maybe have your distraction be a podcast that's invigorating, that makes you think like what you're doing right now. This is still a distraction, Michael. I don't know if you know or not. We're distracting people right now, but this is a positive distraction, okay? There are many, many ways for us to get distracted negatively. I support positive distractions because it makes us better. So rather than making distraction a bad word, why don't we just kind of add a few good positive distractions into our lives? Kind of changes perspective a little bit, but that would be my response to your question. I mean, look, you know, the... the, the the one thing, like you walk into a room and, you know, say Bezos and Elon Musk, those two guys are at the same level. Let's just say, you know, some are Musk guys, some are Bezos guys, but put them, put Gates, put Buffett, put, you know, a handful of these guys, Zuck, who are worth a hundred billion or higher, right? There's a certain level of respect they have for each other. Why? Because everybody on this call combined and all our families combined have not been criticized. I don't know who your family members are. Maybe some of your family members are presidents and politicians. But the amount of criticism they get is nonstop, okay? So now bring that to a lower level, okay? And you're starting a business and you're about to quit your job to be an entrepreneur. If you're married, your wife or your husband, let's just say you're the founder, your wife who's supporting you, she may say, babe, you sure you want to do this? Babe, I'm doing this and I need your support. Okay, babe, but we got three kids. We have, we have to take money out of the loan and I'm taking some money out of the 401k, but we're going to make this happen. All right. So you go to sleep and, you know, your spouse does the right thing and supports you. Six months later, you're down to $32,000. A year later, 
you're down to $8,000 and you now have increased debt by $42,000. A year later, nothing's working out. Now you're tagged with a small lawsuit. Now you got fights with your wife. Now you're sitting there, your wife said, babe, we should have stayed at our job and we should have done this, we should have done that. These are all different challenges you're gonna have to overcome in the journey of building a business. For me, when I was coming up, I first went into the technology route when I was 20, 20 years old. And I thought that was how I was, going, how I was gonna make my money and I teamed up with this one company out of Santa Ana, California, and I would drive there every day. It was a technology company website. And one Monday morning, I go there and I put, you know, God knows how much of my own money at 22 years old into this. And it's all on credit minus the $10,000 out in savings. I knock on the door to 30,000 square foot headquarters on a high rise in Santa Ana, California, right by Newport Beach. No one's opening the door. It's me and the president who walked there. His name is Ray Mario. We're at the door. I'm like, hey, Ray, do you have the keys? He says, Pat, my keys don't work. I'm like, what do you mean your keys don't work? You're the president here. I don't know why it doesn't work. Janitor shows up and he says, oh, what are you guys looking for? Well, we're trying to, we work here. Well, yeah, they just closed up shop. They came Sunday, they cleaned house. There's no way in the world. We're on the wrong floor. No, you're on eighth floor. What? Yes. Do you mind opening this? He knew us. Yeah, we'll open it. He opens it up. We see it. 30,000 square foot office space. That's a pretty good size space on one floor. They took everything out and left. And the guy who was running, it was a former billionaire, one of the home, not Home Depot, but the guys before Home Depot, which I think was home base. He had made money. He had a $35 million house in Newport. I'm like, what the hell just happened? So three months later, I'm in debt $49,000. I have nothing going on. My dad's having heart attacks. You know, I'm taking him to the hospital. He can't now work. I don't have any money. You know, my sister's getting married, but we don't have any money to send her to her honeymoon. It's just a mess. So at this point, my recruiting firm from the Army is calling me and telling me, why don't you come back? So I go meet with the Army recruiting station saying, look, at least I know how to be a Hummer mechanic. And I was a decent Hummer mechanic. Send me anywhere. But can you pay off my debt? So now I'm in negotiation with the Army that if they pay off my debt, I'll sign a six-year contract to go to the Army. And we're about to sign. I'm about to sign. So I'm like, oh, my God, do I do this? Do I not do this? Anyways, last minute, I don't sign. I say, let me just try this a little bit more. And then I did. Got into financial services. I started making money. The rest is history. But let me fast forward when we started the company. So I started the company September 23rd uh, of 09. A month later, I get tagged with a 400-page lawsuit by a, you know, one of the largest insurance companies in the world from the Dutch company, $400 billion company. The lawsuit comes out. They're, they're suing me and six other members of the company. I'm like, for what? Because you're going to take your clients. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. Eight months later, I settle it. And I left my 7,000 clients there. I left everything. Never had any issues with those guys. We had to finish it off and move on. And my savings depletes at a half a million dollars in 09 when I started the company. It depletes a year and a half later into $13,000. And one night, my wife obviously doesn't know we're down to the last $13,000 because she just, three months after we got married, she says, I say to her, I'm starting a company. It's like, what are you talking about? You're an executive making nearly half a million dollars your income. You're leaving this to go start your own company? Yes, babe, this is what I have to do. Okay, I'll support you. But we've been only married for three months. So fast forward, that half a million is down to 13,000 plus debt, plus I come home one night and you meet my wife. My wife's like the nicest person. She's so sweet. Like I thought it was fake. And I'm like, no, she's actually real. She's from Texas. And she's crying. I said, babe, what are you crying for? Well, gives me this thing. I said, what is that? I just had a miscarriage. 
and we were trying so hard to have a baby. You know the, you know the whole statistic: seventy percent of first pregnancies will end up at a miscarriage. Well, we don't know that stat. We're like, she's in tears. It's one thirty. I'm emotional. I have to talk to somebody, but I can't call my dad because he told me not to start a company. I can't call my friends. I can't call my relatives. I can't call my employees. I can't talk to my wife. I don't have anybody to talk to at that time. So I go for a walk and I'm a big foreigner guy. So I'm listening to the music we would listen to in the army. I want to know what love is. I'm praying. I'm talking to God. I'm I'm talking to everybody by myself in Chatsworth, California. And I said, man, I feel like we're doing the right thing. I mean, what, what the hell is going on? You know, I'm about to have to shut down everything. People are expecting salary next week. I don't have salary money. I only have $13,000. I got to pay commissions. I got to pay this. Well, next week, a uh, $100,000 bonus came from AIG that was overdue, that we were not timing it to come sooner. It did. And that $100,000 check that came in gave me a little bit more of a lifespan. And then we doubled down. And then obviously it grew from there to what it is today. We raised tens of millions of dollars at this point, And we have a solid valuation. As a company, Oak Tree Capital Management, uh, managing director, they've raised a big chunk of the money for us. And we're at a different situation today. But I will tell you, I was probably weak from week away from being out of business. Okay, I had to hold it together. It, it was emotional torture. It was the anxiety and the panic and the fear and all this other stuff. But what I was doing, rather than shutting down and hiding in my house and crying in the closet, is there's one thing this man named Bill Vogel told me, which was a great advice. Then he said, Patrick, I understand you're heartbroken. I understand you don't know what to do. I understand where you are. Here's one thing nobody can stop you from doing. I said, what's that? Nobody can stop you from working hard. Get up there and do your part. And I, every day I'm at the office, 7, 8 a.m., and I'm staying till midnight every day trying to drive the company. And it eventually turned around. But this is why I got a lot of respect for business owners, entrepreneurs, job creators. This thing is not easy. There's a lot of people that you know, think this is an easy game. Anybody that does the business side and risks their marriage, risks their life savings, risks their steady job with benefits, all of that to run a business, you have to be a little bit off because it will be very challenging or more than anything else. We got to applaud those who end up winning. It's not an easy game. Yeah, I think everyone up here can can certainly relate to that. All right, so, so final question here, Patrick, and everybody here, please make sure you follow Patrick, check out this podcast, obviously. What's been, and I know this is going to sound very generic, but what's been the biggest life lesson that for you? What, what, what's the one thing that you wish you knew younger that you realize is really critical to success? Interesting question. You know, maybe I'll give you a couple of them. One of them I'll give you is that you think you need everyone's support. This idea that you need everybody to win, this idea that you need everyone to support your decision. You know, let's just say one day you run for office, you're like, man, I'll never be a senator, I'll never be a congressman, I'll never be a governor or president. You know, oh, without that guy's uh, money, I'm never gonna make it. Without being on that guy's podcast, I'll never make it. Without getting that guy to invest capital, if I don't hire somebody from that company, I'm never gonna make it. And I've grown to learn, it's not true. You don't need everyone's support. And flat out, you're not gonna get everyone's support. And some of the people that you thought would fully believe in you, they're just not going to believe in you. Some of the people that you thought would support your cause, they're just not going to support your cause for various reasons. And they have the choice to do it or not to do it. Maybe they just don't like you. They don't like the idea. They don't like any of that stuff. But sometimes entrepreneurs overthink when they lose a person that they desperately thought they needed their help. 
and and it's it's tough to tough to get the entrepreneur to believe that when you're in the moment of going through it. But I'm telling you from personal experience, you're gonna find the right support. Now, don't get me wrong. Let me give the flip side and contradict myself and argue myself. I will tell you that you are one relationship away from changing the face of your company and your life. And when I mean by relationship, it could be the right private equity guy, it could be the right board member, it could be the right investor, it could be the right you know, executive you hire that changes the entire structure of your company and the culture, yes, but you're not going to win everybody and that's okay. And the second thing I'll tell you and leave you with, Michael, is I typically like to go look at the, the phases of my life when I, where I was out of whack and I was not having the best six months or a year and I was a little bit bitter or frustrated or agitated or disappointed. And here's what I learned. I learned the biggest thing for me is when I'm, when I'm absolutely on it, growing, killing it is when my values and principles in my life align the way I'm living. Let me say this one more time. Whatever your values and principles may be, okay? And, and if you've never written them down, you, you ought to take a weekend and do this as soon as possible. Whatever your values and principles may be, okay? You write them down. And then if all of a sudden you catch yourself breaking the values and principles that you committed to, you, you become bitter and you don't perform. Let me give you an example. So relationship-wise, okay, relationship-wise, I believe every man and woman before they get married, they should have a short list of non-negotiables, okay? I believe that. And the short list of non-negotiables could be different for different people, okay? Every single time I went into a relationship and I'm like, oh, but you know what? I'll compromise it here because, dude, she is so hot. Oh, my God, she's hot. I'm, matter of fact, you know what? Normally, I don't do this, but I'm going to compromise two of my non-negotiables because she's that hot. Or I'm going to compromise, oh, because, dude, I really want to date this guy. I don't care that he's such and such. I'm willing to compromise it because he's got a lot of money. Whatever it may be, right? And then what happens three months later, you start devaluing yourself. And you're like, why did I compromise for that? What the hell was I thinking? Why did I compromise my own values and principles that matter the most to me? Why did I do that? I don't like that. And then comes bitterness. And then comes agitation towards others. And then comes lack of performance. And then comes we don't sell well, we don't close well, we don't boss well, we don't lead well, we don't follow well, we don't become a good teammate, we don't become a good son, we don't become a good father, we don't become anything good because we're out of whack. So the best phases of my life when I grew the most, Michael, was when I was super aligned. My way of living was super aligned with my values and principles. That's when you're humming. That's a fantastic way to and the space. Everybody that's here again, please make sure you follow Patrick. Uh, Patrick, I know you're a busy guy. I definitely appreciate the hour here. You know, the spaces, conversations are always good in terms of just getting different guests. And you know, usually we talk markets, but I like having people like you on. So I uh, really do appreciate it. And everybody, please enjoy the rest of your day and the weekend. Thank you, Patrick. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. 
Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.